This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hi, Katie. Hello. So, um, hello. I'm uh, Allie Ludlow. I'm a bookseller and category manager at Barnes & Noble, and um, my subjects are art design and photography. I uh, previously was at MoMA and Guggenheim before that for a long time. I've spent a decade in, in museums, so I'm very happy to be at Barnes & Noble, but that's just a little bit of background on me. I truly appreciated your book, The the Story of Art Without Men. And this is a critical subject we've heard inklings of for the past several years. More and more women artists are finally being recognized for their contributions that shifted the trajectory of art, but never before has women's art history been spelled out in this way. It is inquisitive, inspiring, factual, infuriating, and one of the most important texts I have read pertaining to art history. <laughs> this resounded with me partially because I'm a woman artist and art lover, and in that, it, it turns art history on its head. This sheds new light and quite literally breaks what we thought we knew. We learn that our understanding of art history is very one-sided, and our education is primarily from the male perspective. This book liberates us of that. <laughs> My God, it's like getting a bit emotional. That's amazing. I know. <laughs> wow. Thank yeah. you so much. That honestly like means the world. Thank you. It, it actually it made me really quite emotional reading this as well. Cried multiple times. <laughs> so The Story of Art Without Men, which is an amazing title, by the way, is a counterpart to Gombrich's The Story of Art, which in its latest and 16th edition only included one woman artist. The amount of time, energy, and research spent on this is extraordinary. It is a true labor of love as you uncover so many women who have been lost to history. How did you even do this and what were your first steps? Well, I mean, first of all, Ali, thank you so much. Honestly, just your words mean the world to me and just the fact that you've read it and just everything. It just, you know, what's amazing, I think, about this book is it is a total sort of collaboration and celebration of all these women. When I open this book, it's kind of like a party because there are so many incredible people who just you know, defied every odds to get to where they are and, they and, and, and just, you know, to be a professional woman artist, whether it's in 2023 or in 1693, it's the same fight. And I, I just completely respect every single one of those women. I mean, it all started eight years ago, uh, really. I mean, this has been a kind of my whole adult life's work and, and it couldn't have been better or more interesting or fun. I feel so lucky that I can do this as a job. It began when I was 21 years old. And I walked into an art fair and I had just finished my art history degree. And I've always been obsessed with art and art history and galleries and museums. And I went into this art fair and I realized out of all the artworks in front of me, not a single one was by a woman artist. And I suddenly had this realization that I'd never addressed the gender imbalance in art history. And I was sort of shocked at my own ignorance or naivety. But the thing is, it's the kind of thing where if you go into galleries and museums, you know, this is where we learn, these cultural centers of the world. I just literally couldn't sleep one night and type the word, type the words women artists into Instagram and nothing appeared. And so I just thought, okay, I need to educate myself. You know, if, if I'm going to go to university courses and galleries and I'm not going to see them there, then I've just got to do the work myself. And it kind of then grew, that was October 2015, and then it grew into a podcast. I've now over 100 episodes deep where I just basically get to interview my heroes and ask them questions that I'm interested in and where I've interviewed artists from all over the world or authors or I love my favorite is when I interview family members of the artist and I sort of really 
Anna Mendieta's niece or Paula Rago's son or Lee Miller's granddaughter. It's like I want to sort of try and access those people. Like you say, it's it's a sort of counterpoint to Gonbrick, really, because I, I grew up reading Gonbrick's story of art and I loved it. And it wasn't until I was, you know, about 25 that I realised that he didn't include a single woman artist in his first 15 editions and only just the 16th edition include just one which is catapult it was amazing I know it's insane yeah. <laughs> and so it really kind of began from that and this book is a kind of labor of love I mean I, I'm completely obsessed with every single artist in it and and the thing is, is I, I always say to people it's totally not definitive art history because there are so many amazing artists in the world from all different backgrounds from all different times this is just kind of what the information I've accumulated in my short life it's just who I've I've had a look at really that's just phenomenal. But like you dive into so many eras and movements from centuries ago. And if those artists weren't presented to us by museums or through education, how did you even find them? I mean, that's the amazing thing about the internet, really. And and books and museums and the things they are in there. You know, for example, the National Gallery in London, just 1% of the National Gallery's collection is made of women. It's shocking. And actually, I did some research the other day, and only nine of those works were on view. It's like, where are we going to go? But the thing is, you know, it's not like women artists have never existed. Women artists have existed for centuries. And also, it's the fact that actually it's more about the narrative. It's about who has been able to dictate these stories, who has been able to be the directors of museums, the curators of museums, the people who got to write these books. There's no coincidence that they all seem to be from one category. <laughs> so what's amazing about the internet is that it can launch, you know, my career began on the internet. I'm a, I'm a kid who was born in the 90s, and that, that that's kind of my route. And so I just spend all day, every day, researching. And what the amazing thing about the internet is, is that you can you can find people the whole time, and then you can go to your library, you can go to your museums, and you can track these artists down, and you can see their work in the flesh. It's about being conscious about this, you know, question being like, where are the women? Do can can I name ten women artists off the top of my head? Can I name any artists who are women who are working pre 1900? And so what I hope this book addresses as well is like people go to the Met and they say, okay, you know, I can see Monet, Van Gogh, Manet, Gauguin, but what about Bert Morisot? What about America Sat? What about mm -hmm. Susan Valadon? What about, you know, all these people? And so it's about actually just checking yourself like I did mm -hmm. eight years ago yeah. and saying, actually, can I name the, this amount of women off the top of my head? And what or who was your most surprising find? They, they all were so incredible. I mean. You know, one of my favorite, I mean, what I really want to do with the book is like not even just break down the canon in terms of gender imbalance. I don't just want to remove the sort of stigma around elitism with art history because art is often seen as this really inaccessible thing. But I also want to champion artists who are from all different backgrounds. You know, they might be trained, they might be neurodiverse, they might be tapestry makers, they might be painters, they might be academically trained. But it's about saying, okay, everyone is part of this story. And I think one of my favorite Maybe the most surprising person was this extraordinary artist called Charlotte Salomon, who was working in the 1940s. And she was a German Jewish artist. And she made this extraordinary work called Life or Theatre between the years 1941 to 1943, when she was on the run from the Nazis, when she was staying in her, her grandparents' house in the south of France. And this work is called Life or Theatre. She's not a trained artist in terms of the sort of academic, academic sense. She just you know, sometimes we have these burning desires to make things or write things because they're just necessary. And that's what she did. She made this work called Life or Theatre, which is essentially a kind of autobiographical sort of 
graphic novel style book. It's made up of about over 700 gouaches, which is kind of like these watercolors. And they're kind of just smaller than A4. And what's amazing is people have now made them into a book, so you can have a look at them quite easily. And it's a sort of autobiography of her life. Well, it's, it's sort of based on an opera, so it's sort of divided into three different parts. And it's called Life or Theatre because it's about her growing up in Berlin as a young Jewish girl and coming to terms with the rise of fascism, fascism, the rise of Nazism, and, you know, suddenly being excluded from lessons in her classroom. But it's also about dealing with that. But not only that, it's about dealing with mental health. It's about dealing with falling in love when you're younger. It's about dealing with, you know, discovering beautiful places in the countryside. And so it's this utter sort of joy of a book, but also, well, it's, it's this kind of, I, I mean, it's so difficult to describe it because it's so visceral. It's basically this woman who was just, had this desire to make something. And she called it life or theatre because she couldn't comprehend what was life and what was theatre because the world that she was growing up in was so incomprehensible. And she very sadly died when she was aged 26, five months pregnant, when she was reported to Auschwitz. And, you know, the fact that we have a record of this woman from this time is just extraordinary. And where do we see her? You know, I, I saw a small exhibition at the Jewish Museum in London a few years ago. But it's like, this is the kind of work that needs to be in the history books, because it's extraordinary. This is a woman who sort of did everything. The fact that this work is still contained, still exists, you know, right. it's amazing sort of visceral, immediate reaction to the time. Well, and also the fact that she was able to create so much work while on the run. Like it was 700 gouaches. Yeah. I, re I remember that in reading the book. Um, and that artist like specifically spoke to me as well. The fact that she was 26 when she was caught and sentenced to death. And just absolutely wonderful. Life or theater it is shocking. And I wish it was something that I had been shown by teachers, professors <laughs> in, in museums. Um, yeah, it, absolutely incredible work. Because also she made it at a similar age to you, I was writing this book. And those things, where you just I think that's the thing about these stories. Like as a woman, I just connect to so many of them. It's like Artemisia Gentileschi, one of the greatest artists ever to live, who was born in 1593, who was part of the Baroque movement. And Baroque, the Baroque movement was sort of on the cusp of the 17th century. And it was kind of known for its sort of stunning light effects, sort of visceral scenes, psychological intensity, and these subject matters that were essentially propaganda. It was very much spit by the Catholic Church based in Rome. And it was kind of almost propaganda to sort of get people back into the church because obviously the Reformation was happening in sort of Northern Europe. And so sort of present all these artists, presented all these incredibly dramatic, visceral, biblical scenes. And Artemis Gentileschi, she was born in 1593 in Rome. And she had the access of being an artist because her father was an artist. And that's so common for artists, especially kind of pre-1900, because you always had to have a sort of powerful man looking after you. It could either be from the nunnery, you could have a husband who was, uh, you know, gave you access to this. And bear in mind that women didn't have access to the life room until the 1890s. And what Artemisa Gentileschi did, she made these extraordinary paintings, these kind of biblical scenes, retold these scenes. And the first work she ever signed and dated was when she was 17, a Susanna and the Elders, which is extraordinary. We've got a picture of it in the book. And it's a towering work. I've seen it in the flesh. It's huge. And what it does, it, you know, the, the story of Susanna and the Elders basically follows this young, virginal woman, Susanna, who's bathing in her garden when two lecherous men try to seduce her. And it's a very common story because it allows for the semi-naked Susanna. And so, so often the time when we see Susanna's by Rubens or even Caravaggio or whoever, you know, it's often sort of sexualized in a way. 
And what she did is she gave voice to Susanna. You know, it, when we have a look at this scene, she's actually really showing Susanna. It's, it's an uncovering scene. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. She, From the female perspective. Exactly. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I'm not 17 anymore, but I can, it, it, it sort of, you know, when I go into museums, I find it difficult to relate to these people because they're not telling my story. And the fact that Artemisa Gentileschi was extraordinary. She was an international celebrity in her day. You know, people would commission portraits of her hand because she was so revered. And it's the fact that she's been written out of our history. When I look at these stories, I connect with these women so much because they just did everything possible to sort of fight their way into the canon. They did. And especially with our Artemisia Gentileschi, she, she's one of my favorite artists. <laughs> I read The Passion of Artemisia when I was in high school and just completely blew my mind. And uh, for our viewers, a, a little bit of history on Artemisia as well is that she was raped by her father's assistant or apprentice yeah. and um, took it to court in the 16th century and was tortured for it to basically tell the truth if she was raped or not, which is just absolutely wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's amazing is the fact that the, the the document of the trial still exists. Yeah. So we still we can still hear these like courageous words. And it, yeah, she was tortured during the seventh month trial. Like, could you imagine being eighteen years old and all this? Yeah, it was seven months. And what she what happened was they tortured with this. They tortured her with this sort of instrument called a sibile which is ropes tied around your fingers and tightened. Basically dislocating. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, as an artist, your biggest tools are, are your hands. Exactly. <laughs> it's abhorrent. It's abhorrent. You, you just feel for her. I mean, you just... You really do. I mean, you know, she lost her mother when she was so young. She mm-hmm. basically was asked to raise her younger brothers and also run her father's studio. But she just, she fought back. And the work that she made were these heroic, these works of heroic women, like, Judith, Susanna's, Lucretia's, Medusa's. Like my favorite one of her works in the book, which is Judith beheading Holophonies. And, and what's extraordinary about it is in the in the real story, it's her maidservants keeping watch outside and, and Judith's sort of butchering Holophonies' head like a piece of meat. But what Artemisia does, she kind of almost kind of show the power of sisterhood and show the power of collaboration when women get together. Judith and her maidservant work together to sort of butcher this man's head like a piece of meat. But also it's it's kind of, hilarious as well because it's so dramatic and visceral it's so dramatic it's so visceral and one of the most grotesque paintings i've ever seen (laughs) it's absolutely astounding what she was able to create at such a young age well women artists created astonishing works considering their suppression and society's rules that dictated what they could or could not do they were unable to attend life classes where one studies nudes until the end of the 19th century these restrictions made it impossible for them to contribute to the styles or subjects that were the trends of those eras, literally making their art unimportant. And many of them were subjected to creating works deemed by art history as low art, such as textile, quilt making, stilt life, etc. Do you feel that the art world and art education has done its part to right those wrongs and give space to what was once considered low art? It's a great question. I think that you know, I think we're living in such an exciting time right now because, you know, I, I, I don't know about New York, but in London, we've recently had exhibitions, you know, dedicated to textile artists, ceramicists, potters, weavers, all these things. I mean, you know, for example, the Annie Albers exhibition at Tate Modern was one of the most popular exhibitions because people were astonished at this woman who was using these textiles. And Annie Albers started out, started out her career at the Bauhaus when 
was, you know, the Bauhaus was sort of meant to be this sort of utopian idea of education, all equal, but it obviously wasn't. The women were kind of shunned away to the weaving workshop, but then what they did, they actually kind of monopolized these genres and these art forms. So they, you know, in, in a way, the, the greatest, the highly considered weavers and tapestry makers from history are women because that's what they were sort of subjected to do. But I think what was extraordinary is the fact that, you know, women were, you know, they had to sort of deal with these certain lower considered um, artworks or genres. But what they did, they kind of switched them up. So, for example, you mentioned, you know, women, women artists didn't have access to the life until the 1890s. And they were very much restricted to portraiture or still life because they were easily accessible. Because mm-hmm. you could paint yourself, you could paint your sister, you could paint your teacher, you could paint the sort of still life scene in front of you. But what they did, they kind of totally switched these up. So, for example, Sophonis for Angosola, this extraordinary artist working in the 1550s. And I, I mentioned this work in the book. Uh, we've got the chess game, but also her self-portrait with Bernardino Campi, who was her teacher. And what she's doing here is she's, it, it, it might at first seem like a painting of her teacher painting her. But then you realize that it's actually her dictating the whole scene. She's holding. <laughs> exactly. So, so it's 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 Sophonis Bangosola dictating her teacher, dictating her appearance. And she not only is she 1.5 times as big as him, not only is she getting him to sort of paint the embellishments of the jacket, which is a task normally assigned to an apprentice, but if you look very closely, you see that she's actually got her hand matching his, as if she is guiding his hand around the canvas i mean you just think this is this is the 1550s and she's switching up gender conventions there <laughs> i mean it's it's just totally extraordinary and similarly with the chess games the chess games she's showing her sisters participating in a conversational game of chess and it's not only is she showing women's intellect but if we look at the background of this work it's a landscape and so what these people are doing they're interweaving other genres sort of almost proving their worth and one of my favorite works in the book is by clara peters who was this extraordinary Flemish still life painter? I don't know if you've seen it, but what I what I do in the book, which I which was which was fantastic, is sometimes I include crops of the artwork to kind of guide people, just to say, just take another look at this. So what might at first seem like a sort of you know your oh, right. still life yes, of flowers and sort of goblets and chains and whatever all laid out. If you look closer at this goblet, look closer. I've got a thing here. There are more than 10 self-portraits. I mean, like you can't, <laughs> probably can't see that, but reflected. So it's like these women are like, you know, also the, the amount of misattribution in art history as well. The fact that so many works by Fran, by Judith Leicester were actually, you know, misattributed to Franz Hals. The same with the amazing work by Marie de Nivier at the Metropolitan Museum, because they thought it was by David. And so it's the fact that actually, how do you sort of make your mark on the world, make your mark on the world and you know, make sure that your work doesn't get misattributed. You interweave mm-hmm. self-portraits. Mm-hmm. And immortalizing themselves. Right, exactly. Yeah. Actually, just the just the act of defiance a self-portrait can also do mm-hmm. for you. The fact that you're saying, this is me, this is my mark. And the amount of women artists also who immortalize themselves, you know, at the easel. And it's the fact that actually what they did was they said, this is who I am. You know, I am an artist. This is how I want to be remembered. This is my legacy because women artists did exist. They did. And there are a couple of works I'd like to call out that you talk about in your book. Please. The Kiss by Gustav Klimt. A masterpiece in the eyes of so many, revered for its design, subject, and beauty. A woman artist created a work that is strikingly similar to 
Klimt's kiss five years prior, and yet I've never heard of Margaret Mackintosh. We know that he would have seen this piece since it adorned the piano of one of his most prominent collectors. Would you mind talking about that a little bit here? Yes, I'm so pleased no one really <laughs> ever asked me about this. This is great. Um, so, yeah, so Margaret MacDonald Mackintosh was extraordinary. She was a Scottish artist who, with her sister, they're part of the Glasgow group and the Glasgow style, which is a bit sort of like Art Nouveau or something. It's these kind of whiplash lines, sort of curvilinear, very sort of, yeah, sort of early, mm-hmm. late 19th century, early 20th century. And she was part of a group called The Four. And it was Frances and Margaret who were sisters and their husbands. Frances' husband was Herbert McNair. And Margaret's husband was a very famous architect called Charles Rennie Mackintosh, uh, who designed the Glasgow School of Art. And if you're from Scotland, you he's sort of the most revered architect. They exhibited in Vienna in 1900. And as a result, they received lots of commissions by Viennese collectors and patrons and she made these extraordinary panels for, for a collector's home to go on to adorn his piano. And they were called the Opera of the Wind and the Opera of the Sea. And like I said, these kind of whiplash lines, these curvilinear forms, these sort of very elegant sort of tall women. And there is the most extraordinary work, which I include in the book. And, and, and this work, you know, shows these this couple sort of intertwined, these faces joining up like a kiss or something. And it is completely strikingly similar strikingly similar composition to Klimt's The Kiss. And you know, there's there's nothing it's wrong shocking. with <laughs> I know. But there, there, there is nothing wrong with borrowing motifs, oh. you know, I just do it the whole time. But it's oh. the fact that she is never credited where he is. And it's I, you know, it really brings up that question of how we contextualize women artists as well. And actually why why have their influence been left out of major artworks in art history as well. And so I wanted to address the fact that, you know, so many of us know what the kiss, the kiss looks like. I can look at it in my head. Mm-hmm. I know it so well. And it's the fact that actually maybe this woman did influence him, which and she needs to be credited in art history. You know, it's it's similarly with the, you know, the Beatles cover. It's like Sgt. Pepper's the album cover. It wasn't just done by Peter Blake, it was done by Jan Howarth as well. And it's like, you know, all these lost stories and history. We need to make sure that people are sort of rightly credited. Um, but also that's also not to say that we should also define them by their male counterparts at all, because that's also what I wanted to do with the book is actually, you know, the reason why I root it in social and political history is because I was so fed up of everyone saying, oh, you know, Lee Krasner was Jackson Pollock's wife. It's like, no, 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 no. You know, it might be, it might be sort of relevant for certain contexts, but I was so fed up of women being seen as the wife of, the muse of, the daughter of, the sister of, and actually by rooting them within their sort of social and political context we really get a sense of who they were and um, how much they fought to succeed as artists. Well, and another one I would love to call out is Duchamp's Fountain, which is known as one of the most important works of modern art, spearheading the ready-made and Dada. In your book, we learn that this piece was submitted to the Society of Independent Artists by a woman, his contemporary, and I might be butchering her name, Elsa von Freytag-Loringhoven, Yes. And that Duchamp even wrote to his sister that a female friend sent the work and not him. This news came into discussion only a few years ago. How is it possible that this was overlooked by historians and Freytag Loringhoven has not been fully recognized in the preservation of art history? You know, so so she's known as the Baroness because yep. she married a, a cash-stricken baronet, Baron. And she's called, yeah, Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven. And she arrived in New York City in the early 1910s. And 
not only did she influence Duchamp to actually submit a fountain, and like you say, you call out the letter that he writes to his sister, Suzanne, where he says, you know, a female friend actually, you know, inspired me to do this. But she was this extraordinary artist who sort of used to walk the streets of New York City, you know, with sort of cans as a kind of top around her, with, with tied with string as a, as a top. She used to have sort of stamps on her cheeks. She used to have sort of carrots and vegetables in her hair. She was essentially a living performance artist. And what she did is she used to perform at these salons where Man Ray and Duchamp would all attend. And she made these poems called ready-made poems, where she'd kind of adopt slogans from advertising. So not only did she inspire Duchamp's The Ready-Made, in terms of also through this idea of poetry as well, but when we think about Marina Abramovich, Yoko Ono, all these people, she was a precursor to them. She mm-hmm. was the kind of living embodiment of a performance artist. And so she, you know, it's the fact that these women, they did so much and they were just hardly remembered in our history. Um, and it's the fact that the ready-made, you know, when we go to MoMA and we see it or we see all different, his different works, it's so important to recognize that these women were there too. And I think that's that's where we've got into sort of, I don't know what's happened in our history because it's almost as though people have consciously written these women out. It's erasure in a way. Yeah, it's totally yeah. erasure. And it's the fact that actually we need to recognize the fact that these women were so influential and they they too need to be credited and recognized. And like I say in the book, you know, the Baroness, she died in complete poverty and, in, and she was completely unknown. She had no success in her life. How did history get away with sort of celebrating the history of patriarchy rather than celebrating the history of art? Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) And in the chapter on modern art, you say that modern art is modern because of its inclusion of women. This shattered me because I had never thought of it in that way before. And I don't believe that any of my professors or in my education, I've heard that specifically said. When I was writing that, I was like, what is modern art? You know, and also what does modernism even mean? You know, eradication of hierarchies in terms of art forms lines shattered on a canvas, all these different things. And actually, it's about the participation of women. It's about, you know, in 1900, in the early 20th century, women artists got more freedoms than ever. Like you said, they had access to the life room. They Mm -hmm. could unchaperoned. They could actually paint what they wanted because they were not now under the guard of men. You know, it's Mm -hmm. the fact that like Paula Modersen Becker, an extraordinary German artist who traveled to Paris on a 17-hour train journey because she wanted to see the splendors of the French modernists. And she was adopted these traits and she made self-portraits. She made images of the mother and child that had never, ever been made before. And it's the fact that this is the first time in history where women are telling their stories on their terms. It's like one of my favorite artists in that chapter is Suzanne Valadon, who was this extraordinary French artist. Again, she had no formal training. She started out because she was born illegitimately. And she, you know, in, in sort of late 19th century, that was, you know, not, not seen as something that was particularly good. And what she did is she wanted to be a trapeze artist, but her trapeze dreams were, her acrobatic um, dreams were cut short when she fell from a trapeze age 15. And she had very striking looks. And so what she did, she became an artist model. And she sat for the likes of Renoir, Degas, Toulouse-Lautrec, etc. And she always wanted to be an artist. And instead of going to an art school formally, also she didn't have much money. What she did, she learned almost a kind of backdoor way by looking at those who were painting her. And so, you know, Degas would like teach her drawing, which has such a wonderful story. At age 46, she had her first ever solo exhibition. And she actually became extremely successful in her lifetime. But how many people have heard of her? Actually, the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia did an extraordinary exhibition of her last year. But that was one of the first ever. And this woman was around 100 years ago. 
And the work by her that I include in the book is a work called The Blue Room. And if you look at this work, it's it's of, of a woman, it's a self-portrait. It very much sort of evokes the Venus-like pose. So it's this reclining woman, but she's fully clothed, unlike Venus, who is often seen as naked and, and, and nude and sexualized. And she's smoking. She's got a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. She's wearing trousers. She has pushed these back books to the back of her bed. And she's just saying, I'm doing whatever I want, whatever I wish. Mm-hmm. And I think that is amazing because it's actually just saying, I've got independence. It's like with Gwen John in that chapter as well, an extraordinary, well, extraordinary Welsh artist who studied at Slade in London and then who, who went to Paris. You know, there's this work that I put in the self-portrait chapter and it's actually a a portrait of her room. It's a, a portrait of her tiny attic and walls. Right, yes, with the chair in the corner and the um, her belongings on it. And they belong to her. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly. And that is, that is modernism. It's saying, mm-hmm. these are my belongings. I'm a woman. I can make my own money. I can live alone and I can be an artist. I can make, I can fund my professional career. And if it was, wasn't for these women, we would not be having the jobs that we have now. No. No, we would not. <laughs> and also it's the fact that they also painted their story into our history as well. You know, even as a woman today, it takes a lot to own your own belongings and own your own place and all these things. But we can do it. And so they, they inspire me. And I know that this book was a feat in itself, but I feel like it's crucial to continue this work. Are you going to create updated editions in the future? My God, I'd love to. I'd absolutely love to. I mean, what's amazing about this project is that I still, so my Instagram, The Great Women Artists, I posted about Cecily Brown yesterday because I saw the show at the Met. I posted about Helen Franklin the the night, day before because I went to the, her show at her go show. And it's the fact that, which is amazing. And I need to go. <laughs> and I still have the podcast. You know, so mm-hmm. it's like, it's. I would love to create a future editions. Absolutely. And I think what's what I've always tried to do and I always try to say to people is that, you know, nothing ever happens overnight. Also, I'm standing on the shoulders of countless art historians who I'm lucky enough to interview for my podcast and speak to and have discussions with. You know, I mean, the, the book is also, you know, the acknowledgements is about 50 pages because I, I spoke with so many amazing scholars who have dedicated their life to it. You know, the, 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 the extraordinary art historian, Diane Radicke, who, you know, got MoMA to buy their ever first ever Paula Modison Becker the incredible Sue Tate, who literally from Bristol, who single-handedly unearthed the story of the pop artist Pauline Boaty. And so, you know, what's amazing is I can have them on my podcast and I can, you know, we can, we can, we can talk about their journey as well. And I think I, what I always say to people is that, yeah, nothing ever happens overnight. Always use the resources that you have around you. And everyone always says, you know, how can we be better? How can we take this forward? Just by those who are listening to this podcast right now, that's a step forward. You might then talk to a friend about it. You might walk into a museum and think, actually, where are the women artists? And, you know, I didn't have anything age 21. So I started an Instagram. I curate lots of exhibitions. My first ever exhibition was in a foyer of an advertising agency. Uh, you know, nothing happens overnight. And now I have a book. But but that that takes years. And and so it's the kind of thing that we've, and it's been like a podcast. I can do it from my bedroom. So I made a podcast. So it's it's all about sort of using all the resources that you can in your capacity. And it's the kind of thing where I would love to update it. But whilst I wait for someone to ask me to do that, I can spotlight these artists on my Instagram or my podcast. I mean, you know, this book came out in England about 10 months ago. And already it's sort of, for me, I'm like, oh my goodness, there are so many other artists who I've learned about since. And it's also the, it was the Waterstones book of the year. Congratulations on that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was, 
totally amazing. I think also because what was incredible about that was the fact that the subject was being recognized. I think that's, you know, whatever, this is a book by me, like that's kind of irrelevant because it's about the fact that these stories have been so overlooked for so long. And, you know, the fact that art books as well, it's often sort of, I don't know about America, but in England, they're often sort of on the fifth floor of the bookshop or something. And the fact that Waterstones gave it this spotlight and said, actually, these stories matter was just, it was emotional. And I was just wondering as well, was there a specific era or movement that you found it particularly difficult to navigate? You know what? I mean, we've, we've spoken around it already, but it was it really was Paris at the start of the 20th century. Okay. Because it was just this total explosion. It's like, mm-hmm. how do you put into words what happened in Paris in the early 20th century? Because there was just so much happening. And actually, as a result... I sort of deliberated over this chapter for months. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. When there's so much going on, how do you kind of break it up? And in a way, you know, this, you have to, at the end of the day, you have to write a book, you have to write a linear story. And so what I, the way that I sort of twisted that was I actually, you know, most of the book is rooted in social and political history, but actually in in the start of modernism, I actually just write a chapter on self-portraits because I just didn't really know how to explain it otherwise, because it, there's just, it's just this explosion of art making and creativity and there's just so much going on all at once are you going to be sending a copy to george baslitz <laughs> i have to say i don't know i was feeling particularly I, I remember like writing that chapter in my kitchen and sort of like typing like this i was like you know what this is insane so for context one of my favorite chapters is on the 1980s because it was just this i mean it's like the era of cindy sherman uh nan golden carrie may weems francesca woodman Jenny Holzer, Barbara Kruger. It's like, I mean, Lorraine O'Grady. It's just extraordinary. I was feeling particularly punchy that day. And I was <laughs> very much inspired by my podcast episode with the Gorilla Girls. And, you know, the reason why the Gorilla Girls formed in 1985 is because, you know, the, the 1970s was this explosion of feminism. But actually, even though there was so much work that was done, were museums actually really taking note? And had, it, had anything actually changed? I mean, obviously so much had. But what the Guerrilla Girls did, they called these public institutions out by, by these amazing kind of punchy slogans saying, you know, do women artists have to be naked to get into the Met Museum because there are more nudes of women than there are works by women artists? The advantages of being, the disadvantages of being a woman artist, the fact that you have hardly any shows and you have recognition right at the end of your life, et cetera, et cetera. The solo exhibitions and calling out each museum for how many solo exhibitions they had on women artists. Exactly. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where if the museums were not going to, you know, spotlight these artists and give them shows, and these then artists took to the streets. They said, fine, we'll make our own place. And what they did, the Gorilla Girls got up during the night, they wore Gorilla Girls at the Gorilla Masks, and they pasted these posters all over New York City. And it grabbed the, the attention of the public. But yes, I was very much inspired by them. And then I, I read this quote by George Bazalitz from 2013 only 10 years ago only a few years ago (laughs) and he said women don't paint very well it's a fact and so I said okay well he's he's you know he's still alive shall we send him a copy of his book because we can prove that they absolutely don't I think you should it's I mean this this is life-changing it really is and just thank you thank you for spending time and energy and love on this because I just really hope that teachers, art lovers, anyone takes a look at this because it it is so incredibly deeply important. 
Thank you for um, joining us on this podcast and talking about your book. Barnes & Noble has our, our exclusive of the story of art without men with Katie Hessel. They're all signed and they have a postcard by Rachel Roish, um, this beautiful still life of flowers. And so please come and grab a copy. And one more thing before we end is that I love that you started this book from a quote from one of from Artemisia Gentileschi. It's just the perfect opening to this book. And I would love to end the podcast on it if you don't mind. <laughs> 1649, Artemisia Gentileschi wrote, I'll show you what a woman can do. And that is, it's it's the first thing you see in the book. And it just is. You know, women artists have been around for centuries. I mean, you know, this book is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of work that by women. And, you know, what I really hope with this book, I never say it's a definitive art history because there are so many to be written. And I hope that it inspires other people to write their version of the story of art without men. And it's a party. It's a celebration. It, it took a lot of time and energy and love, but really there's nothing I'd rather do more than mm -hmm. sit down and research these people. And the fact that I can share it to the world and people like you can read it, it's basically just what's inside my head. And now I can just have amazing conversations with everyone because we can talk about it. Well, Katie, thank you so, so much. <laughs> you, Ali, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you and I'm just so excited for the US to get the. Thank you so much. Hello readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of The Story of Art Without Men. I'm Mark at My Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm going to have two fantastic booksellers uh, take over the recommendations today. I've got Madison in Los Angeles, and I've got Jamie in Kansas. So Madison, why don't you go ahead and start us off? I'd love to. So when I was thinking of books to recommend, I went with the art of writing. So I chose to recommend How to Suppress Women's Writing by Joanna Russ. And this is a book that's so heavily, heavily researched between all the literature she studied to make this book. It has all the research, but it's also kind of put together a bit like humorously. So it still has that personality to it, even though it's a heavily research book like you might have to like look up some stuff yourself if you're reading it but it still has that like wit and personality which I love when you're talking about like such a heavy topic of like uh women writers it's kind of like a guidebook to the many ways women and minorities have been hindered from producing written work so a lot of the times when we think about women and artwork, writing, whatever work they're producing, you hear like, she wrote it, but she made it, but, and kind of like that tale as old as time of this woman did something, but like, it could have been better. It would have did like kind of on and on about like this, but this, this book illustrates the barriers to art making that many women have felt. Either it's always getting compared to a man's work, it's not being appreciated for what it is, it gets appreciated less just because she's a woman, kind of like all of those struggles for this time. And even though the center focus is like women and their written work, even in like this day and age, I feel like a lot of it can, this book can apply to multiple minorities. Like you can see the patterns without, like throughout this book. Like 
you can take out the women and insert like a different minority and you can kind of see how like even though the world is like progressing we still have like this but this I really like this book because even though it's a heavily researched book and you might have to do some like looking out on your own it might not be just like a sit through easy read it is still very thought-provoking and I think it is worth it it definitely showcases the tools that are used to suppress people and how they're used to deny a like literary history to other marginalized groups I think it is definitely definitely worth it even though it might take a few weeks or months to read I think that it's one that you can just like honestly sit through and maybe read a chapter and then like come back and read another and that was how to suppress women's writing by Joanna Russ all right, Jamie, what do you have for us? Actually, I think you and I are kind of in the same vein here. Mine is a little bit more directly about specifically the visual arts, but um, Linda Nochlin had a famous essay that she wrote that was titled, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? And it was just republished uh, recently in a lovely hardback 50th anniversary edition by Thames and Hudson. They put that out in, in uh, 2021. And it was presented side by side with like a reappraisal that she did um, 30 years after the original essay. The story behind this essay goes that a male gallerist once asked her, why have there been no great women artists? And her response was that silly questions deserve long answers. And so in 1971, she published this very controversial essay in response to that question. And at the basis of this, you know, provocative argument that she was making, is the presumed answer that that question supplies. And that is that there aren't great women artists because women aren't capable of greatness. Nochlin has a bone to pick with that answer, with that assumption. To help set the stage a little bit here, in the early 70s, this is when we're really starting to see the rise of the, of the feminist movement in general. And with that come these moments of kind of shattering long-held arguments and beliefs. So Linda Nochlin seized on that idea um, that art history and art education left women out uh, in terms of power. And, and there were critical movements that excluded women entirely um, due to gender prejudice in society at large and in art history particularly. So she points out, you know, that there's this unlevel playing field. Women aren't historically allowed to work as artists. They were restricted in their movement. Uh, they weren't able to sell or display their art or acquire apprenticeships or even attend art schools. And so to say that women have not achieved, you know, greatness as men have is to assume that the narrative presented by men is the only one that can assign value uh, to art. And she just shatters that argument in her essay and calls for significant art history and art education reform and for finally recognizing the women artists who did achieve greatness while overcoming all of this resistance. Three decades later, like I said, she revisited her essay and those observations are included in this edition as well. And of course, we all know in the last 30 years of the 20th century, there was a really a tectonic shift in attitudes toward women in, in particular. But she tells us that, you know, just having a, a feminist art theory is not going to be enough, that we have to do more as we as time moves on than just reinsert uh, great work from great women back into our art history. but. Going forward, we need to question the entire idea of 
canon, um, which I think is what your book was talking about a little bit too, Madison, to put it in her words, she says it's time to ruffle feathers. So what's great about this 50 years on, I think, reading it is that it's not controversial to have a feminist theory of art. And this essay um, was sort of the spearhead of that movement um, that's in full force today. And it's why books like uh, The Story of Art Without Men get to be a very successful, you know, Waterstones Book of the Year pick is because we had Nachlin start us off with this great essay. (laughs) I knew knew when when we saw that we were going to do The Story of Art Without Men, I thought, oh, Jamie and Madison are going to just trounce this in the best possible way. And you came through, as expected. Uh, Thank you both so much. And thank you, listener, for tuning in. That's all we have for today. But please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. Jamie, where can we find you? I'm at BN Leewood KS. And Madison, where are you at? I am at BN Events Grove. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week and happy reading. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.